Now we turn to Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs 9, verses 7 through 12. a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Let's go to the Lord now together in prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we turn tonight to your word. We pray that by your spirit you would search us, convict us of our sin, comfort us in the gospel, and conform us more into the image of Christ. That we would turn by faith to the only hope for sinners, your Son, our Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we turn in God's word to Matthew chapter 9. I'll read verses 9 through 17. Hear now the word of God. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. 
Children, you know the answer to this question, I bet. What is a covenant? You probably remember. I'm not going to call on anyone. <laughs> the Catechism says a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. It's an agreement, a relationship, the way that God has always dealt with humans. Every person who has ever lived is in a covenant relationship with God. Either in the first Adam, where there is death and condemnation, or by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in the last Adam. The covenant theology of the Bible tells us that when Adam sinned and broke the covenant of works, God did not leave him or those of us who have been born since then in condemnation and judgment. But he makes a promise right away in Genesis 3. He then continues to make that promise of the covenant of grace throughout the scriptures. I will be your God and you will be my people. And Christ comes, fulfills the trial, wins for his people the right to eat from the tree of life. Christ says on the night in which he was betrayed, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The new covenant fulfills the promises made to Abraham. And this is the mission of our Savior. To come and in fulfillment of all of what God has promised, to come and save sinners, those who are weary, those who are lost, straying, burdened, hungry, and thirsty. The church is the gathering of those who are justified yet sinful. And we are in Christ first, disciples who are a part of this new covenant. Here in Matthew 8 and 9, we see that Jesus is on a rescue mission to go to people from all different parts of society, from the leper to the paralytic, now to the tax collector. He's forgiving sins and he's healing. Adam's sin plunged us into death. Now the forgiveness of sins through Christ brings about the restoration of all things. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, today in our text, meets a man named Matthew who lives in Capernaum and is a tax collector. Children, maybe you saw mom and dad scurrying off or hurrying to send in some forms this week in the mail or they called someone on the phone and they talked about taxes. Have you heard of those things? We just had tax week, so maybe this kind of makes you jumpy reading this passage. This is the writer of the gospel. You've been preaching through Matthew, is that right? So you are all aware of the context probably of this wonderful gospel. In the first century, Rome required all sorts of taxes. You say, well, that sounds familiar. They would determine how much money they needed in the province that they governed to run things. They would farm things out. So the highest bidder would then collect taxes in that region. And they would collect what Rome requires and then anything extra they got to keep. So here's Matthew. He's employed by King Herod Antipas, the brother of Herod Archelaus, and Herod Philip, and the sons of Herod the Great. They really must have liked that name. These are the guys that are governing in this day. And Matthew's job is to collect a tariff that was levied on goods that would travel down from Syria to Egypt between the provinces of these Herods. They would tax literally everything. 
letters, packages, anything you brought, anything you carried. Matthew was a Jew. And when Jews became, became tax collectors for the Romans, they were regarded as outcasts. They were excommunicated from the synagogue. Matthew was very likely known by the other disciples. At this point, there's only four of them. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The rest of them, Jesus will call in Matthew 10. But they probably knew this guy. Jesus probably had interactions with him in, in Capernaum. And as one person writes, in this society, at this time, among the Jews, you couldn't get any lower than Matthew's job. That's the worst. The scum. The unforgivable. Perhaps the most hated man in Capernaum. And look who comes along and notices him. Jesus gazes intently at him. Not with a stern and a scowl and a countenance that would make you run away, but in amazing love, grace, and mercy. In Matthew 5, it says that tax collectors love those who love them. Now Jesus shows love to Matthew. In our day, Kevin DeYoung says, this would be like Jesus coming up to the director of Planned Parenthood, the guy who owns three adult bookstores, and says, come, follow me. Why does Jesus notice him? For the same reason he notices and shows you, by his grace. God comes and saves sinners for those who are undeserving. Matthew is one that the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. I will lose none of them. Here is Matthew's conversion. Here is Matthew being called by the Son of God to follow Jesus and to leave everything. Matthew doesn't comment on that. In fact, as you read the Gospel of Matthew, maybe... Pastor Cypher has already told you this. Matthew doesn't talk anywhere. You notice that? It's very interesting. He doesn't speak. He's very meek and mild in that way. So he's not bringing some of these things out, but Luke does bring it out. Matthew leaves everything to follow Jesus. Some of the other disciples went back and did some fishing, but not Matthew to the tax collecting. Why? Because his job was immoral. He left it. He repented it, repented from it. It's a break from his old life. And that's what the point is that Jesus is getting at. He left behind his former life of sin. And by the grace of the gospel, Jesus says to you, leave everything and follow me. Not that you disappear into a commune, but the patterns of sin that perhaps we once lived in before we were converted. Jesus says, Whatever it is that is competing for me in your heart, I'm going to give you the grace to repent and turn from it. Don't follow your heart. Don't follow the culture around you that is calling evil good and good evil, as God is giving them up, like Romans 1 says. Don't follow false voices or the lies of Satan. And children, some of you are really young, but as you're getting older, there's pressures that come from people that might say that you're, they're your friends or people that might want to tell you to do something to get them to like you or to be popular. 
Jesus says, don't follow those who won't follow and honor me. Jesus calls and saves Matthew. He follows. And you can see the effect of God's grace in his life. He throws a dinner party. And he welcomes all these other sinners to eat, which is a general term here for those who have been living contrary to God's law. So unbelievers, they're being brought by Matthew. And here's the young again. It's easy to kind of put this far off into outer space, but he really applies it well. In our day, Jesus is having dinner with a drug addict, a woman who sleeps around, a homosexual man and his partner, a lesbian and her partner, an atheist, a leader in whatever political party you don't like, a married couple who are at each other's throats destroying their kids, a rich man who has 10 cars and an airplane and a private island, a gang member, a middle-aged woman who buys all the trashy magazines at the checkout counter at the grocery store, a Wiccan, an ex-con, a guy who's been divorced three times, a woman who's so selfish that she always talks about herself and no one wants to be around her. That's who Jesus is having dinner with. Sinners, they're reclining. It's a long discussion, perhaps lasting many hours. And it's a reminder that when we are converted, we want to tell people about Jesus. If you've been Christians your whole life, you want to tell people about Jesus, the good news of the gospel. You think, well, who wouldn't want this dinner? The Pharisees wouldn't. We have an idea in our mind of Pharisees, don't we? But they loved the word of God. They added to it. We're going to see here there's a lot of problems. But they wanted to defend the word of God, but they're missing the whole point, aren't they? Because what are they doing? Well, they're unhappy that a tax collector, a traitor, one who sided with the Romans, who was contributing to all the problems they were seeing around them, would have dinner with Jesus. So they say, do you notice verse 11, to Jesus' disciples. They don't go to Christ. And here we see how much we can be like them. When you and I have a problem with someone, isn't it much easier to go to someone else and tell them about the problem we have with someone else rather than to go to that person? It is, isn't it? That's what's happening here. And they say, the Pharisees do, to the disciples, one of the most arrogant questions in all the Bible. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And what's the implication there? They're not sinners. These guys are, but not me. In that society, to have a meal was to have intimacy and communion and a bond together. If you ate in a Pharisee's home, you had to wear certain garments. And a lot of people would never be able to eat in the home. People of certain types of jobs, especially, including tax collectors. No way, they're not allowed. The Pharisees wanted to quarantine sinners, as one person says. So kids, do mom and dad have Lysol or something they spray to clean stuff or smell good? They're, they're spraying this stuff all around. Stay away. How would Jesus respond? He begins to use illustrations. Don't you love that from everyday life? 
So children, when you, when you get sick, you go where? To a doctor. You don't say, I'm going to go to the doctor tomorrow just because I want to go to the doctor, even if I'm not sick. Our daughter enjoys getting stuffed animals from the doctor. So actually, she, she might have said that a while ago. Can I go get a stuffed animal? But you usually don't want to go to the doctor. Jesus says, I'm a spiritual doctor. I've come for those who are sick. I'm not here for those who are healthy. I'm not here for the righteous, but for sinners. That's a bit ironic. It's not as if anyone is righteous in themselves, right? Romans 3, there's no one righteous, no, not one. Jesus says, I'm no help to those who are self-assured in their righteousness. Let's talk about the Old Testament, he says to the Pharisees. And again, as we talk about this, it's so easy to be a Pharisee toward the Pharisee, isn't it? God, I thank you like, that I'm not like a Pharisee. But what's he doing? He digs into Hosea 6. 700 years before the coming of Christ, the nation of Israel is adulterous. They're going after other gods. They're murdering and robbing. And he brings out a passage that says, God desires literally steadfast love and mercy, not sacrifice. The point of the Old Testament, he's telling them, is that God is a God of mercy. The Pharisees missed this. They didn't understand sin or the law or the prophets or the gospel or the grace of God. They missed it all. The whole Old Testament is teaching that we who have received such compassion from God are now given grace to show compassion to each other. And the Pharisees are trying to distance themselves. In the context, this would be profound because what had just happened in Matthew 9, 1 to 8, Jesus healed the paralytic. His friends brought him to Jesus. They had such love for this man. They wanted to do everything they could to help him. And they got him there. And that's an encouragement, dear brother and sister, to you who help those who are afflicted and weak, sick and weary, perhaps paralyzed, handicapped, medical disabilities. When you care for those who are afflicted, that's an expression of the heart of God who loves those who are poor and oppressed and afflicted and downtrodden. The Pharisees did not understand Jesus' mission. They think it's a test they have to pass to be personally righteous, to qualify for the kingdom of heaven. The legalism of the Pharisees in my heart when I fail to remember I'm a sinner saved by grace through faith in Christ. When I fail to remember Christ has loved me, and I still deal with indwelling sin, and when I begin to think of the sins of others more than my own, that's the, the sin of this Pharisee. The seed is there, right here. As he eats with these tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is not sinning. He's not saying, okay, no big deal. You can rip people off as much as you want. No, he's not offering cheap grace. He's offering life-changing grace. He says they're sick. They're sinners. He calls them to repent. But he doesn't say, as one OPC pastor rightly says, he doesn't say, you need to repent of being a tax collector and then I'll eat with you. He doesn't say, get yourself cleaned up and then come to my house. 
The message of the gospel is not stop doing this and then become a Christian. The message of the gospel is Jesus has come to heal the sick, to call sinners to himself. And as Matthew follows Jesus, what happens? He repents. But we must not put the cart before the horse, as Ferguson talks about in the whole Christ. We must not make conditions and put them in front of the gospel that goes out from Christ's words to all sinners. Repent and believe. Come, you who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus did not apologize for spending this time with sinners. That's what he came for. And it reminds us that there is no person beyond the reach of God's grace. There's no sin so deep in your past that says you are out here and you cannot be saved by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. The church is a place for sinners. We are them. We are tax collectors and sinners who have been redeemed by Christ, crowned with love and compassion. We don't have it all together. So humility is to mark us, not pride. God gives grace to the humble. We who have been forgiven much, what does the gospel say? Love much. We who have been forgiven by God are now to forgive one another. We are the family of God. And as DeYoung says, as he drills down in the application even a bit more, as we search our hearts, none of us would want to restrict the call of the gospel, would we? But are there certain people deep down that we wouldn't want to come to trust Jesus? Or that we wouldn't want to come to church? Is there a list in our minds, he says? He says, who wants to disciple the person who is dealing with bipolar? Who wants to welcome the very socially awkward people to our house for dinner? How would we respond if we saw two lesbians and a goth teen and a trans and a political enemy coming to church? He asked these questions. If we love like Jesus, we will welcome big messes, which is what we all are, messy people that don't fit into the mold of church. And he asks, and I said this this morning to Emmaus Road, and I want to encourage us, will we, I'm sure you are already, continue to pray for non-church people to come, to hear the gospel, to confess Christ, that God would bring them, that they would be welcomed, that we would love them, that we would not ambush them or ignore them as people come to our church services, that we would smile, that we would show engagement with them, that we would invite them to our home, that we would speak the truth in love to them, that the Spirit would convict them of sin, bring them to trust in Christ, that they will repent and know Jesus, and the bridges you are building in your relationships with unbelievers as you honor them, as you pray for them. That's what DeYoung says is a way for this to really apply to us. What's Jesus' mission? Secondly, he brings joy. Do you notice how often in the Bible, Old and New Testament, there's controversy over food? Grumbling about manna, thinking about all the good cucumbers and garlic back in Egypt, Numbers 11. And now Luke tells us 
the Pharisees, Matthew says the disciples of John the Baptist, it's probably both, they're on to the scene and they're asking Jesus a question. Jesus, why don't you and your disciples fast? Are they at this dinner while they're saying this? Is it sometime later? We're not exactly sure. We don't know the timing of all of this. But first, they're criticizing Jesus for eating and drinking with sinners. Now they're criticizing him for eating and drinking at all. Jesus, you're a party animal. You're a drunk. You're a glutton. They talk about that elsewhere, don't they, in the Bible? You should be fasting like we are. There's a whole biblical theology of fasting. and I'm sure Pastor Seifert can talk to you about it after he has some more rest after this season of welcoming a new child. There's one fast that is required in the Bible, just one. Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. But the Bible talks about fasting over 77 times. Old and New Testament. In Esther 4, the edict is given to kill the Jews in Susa. They fast during times of mourning. They're fasting when there's war and plague and disasters and leaders that are being called or ordained. They're fasting. By the time of the prophets, in Zechariah's day, do you remember Zechariah 7? They said, we fasted the fifth and the seventh month after the exile and the return to rebuild the temple. And God says, you weren't fasting for me, but for yourselves. They had completely missed the point. And that's why Jesus is being challenged by the Pharisees here. They were also all about externals, looking a certain way. And in the day of Jesus, that's what they did. The Pharisees are fasting, as you probably know, twice a week, Monday and Thursday. You wonder, was the meal that Jesus had with Matthew and his friends on a Monday or Thursday? We don't know. Maybe. And the Pharisees are fasting, and they're making their faces look ashen and gloomy. Their hair is a mess. Their clothes are all wrinkled. They want you to know they're fasting. To be spiritual, you've got to be unhappy. And uncomfortable, they said. They made fasting an end in itself. So why did Jesus and his disciples not fast? That's the question here, isn't it? What does Jesus say? Matthew 9, 15. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Hmm. What's he saying, children? He's saying, as John the Baptist rightly said, the one the prophets longed for, the bridegroom has come, God in the flesh. He is here. He is here for the day when he will unite his bride, his church, to himself. I'm the one who can give you life, Jesus says. I will give you joy. It's not a time to fast. It's a time to feast. You go to a wedding and a reception. You don't fast. You feast. You enjoy. And that's what Christ is saying. But he goes on. The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. He's referring to his death, a violent death on the cross. Then you will fast. So you ask, well, what is it then? Is it a time to fast? Or to feast. 
And the answer, beloved, is both. It's a time for feasting. Christ died, but he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sent us his Holy Spirit. He's given us the Lord's Supper. He's given us a church family to enjoy fellowship meals together and Thanksgiving dinners and the prosperity of a good meal and having a nice dinner with a friend is a great gift from God. We thank God for that. Every gift, 1 Timothy, is to be received with gratitude and thanksgiving. God gave it. Is it a time for fasting as well? Yeah. Sorrowful yet rejoicing. Fasting is the opposite of feasting. It's an abstaining from food for a period of time to humble the body and soul before God as a help in drawing near to him in prayer. It goes with prayer. Crying out, God, give me a fuller sense of your presence, your power. My soul thirsts for you, Psalm 63. Beloved, you are free to fast. There's no prescribed time or method. Not on this day or that day. It's not to merit or to earn or out of custom or superstition. It's not done like the tearing of garments and the ash cloth and the heads of being covered with ashes. But it is a pattern, isn't it, in the early church? Acts talks about it. Acts 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas are commissioned as missionaries. Elders are ordained. R.C. Sproul says, Fasting places no obligation upon the sovereign God to respond in the way we asked. But he does take a special delight as we show our helplessness in fasting. Our dependence upon him in grace, through faith alone in Christ alone. The love of God compels us, beloved. Not out of legalism or drudgery, not like the Pharisees at all. But as those who are free in Christ, we fast without fear as we wait for the return of Christ, patiently and expectantly. The lamps are burning with oil. We're crying out for the bridegroom to return. The spirit and the bride say, come. We feast and we fast. There's joy in the new covenant. And there's a newness as well, third. Why did Jesus come? To bring newness in a way that the Pharisees weren't expecting. So Jesus is using everyday illustrations, kids. He's a doctor for the sick. He's the bridegroom for the bride. And now he takes you on a journey to Old Navy. What does that mean? Well, kids, you've got an old pair of jeans, and you're kind of growing out of them, and there's holes in them. So mom and dad go and buy you some new jeans at Old Navy, and they come home. You don't say to mom and dad with the new jeans, rip a hole, cut it out, and put that patch from the new pair onto the old pair. You wouldn't do that, would you? It would tear. It would not fit. It would be a really foolish thing to do. Why does Jesus use this illustration? As one man says, he's saying to the Pharisees, do you think you can come here and patch me in to your idea of religion? You've got all these old ideas, these allegiances, these commitments, and you, you get the Jesus patch to kind of top it all off. What Jesus brought cannot be patched onto the old covenant that existed between the Lord and his people. He's come to inaugurate the new covenant 
to give the garment that God promised in Genesis 3 to crush the head of the serpent. Many practices in Judaism were like an old garment. The old covenant itself, the Mosaic economy, is an administration of the covenant of grace legally administered, like the Westminster says. But part of that function of the Mosaic law is to show us our sin. 2 Corinthians, Paul says, the old covenant is an administration of death, the new covenant, and an administration of glory. Jesus is not overturning the Old Testament. He's fulfilling it. He kept the law. He fulfilled the types and the shadows. But the Pharisees had missed it, right? They buried the love of God, the law of love. They'd gotten rid of the idea of compassion with their man-made traditions adding to God's law. Jesus is saying, don't confuse old and new covenants. The new covenant is not, well, God gives you a little more grace to try harder to keep the law. Don't muddle law and gospel. Don't forget the newness of the new covenant. Don't try to please God by your works. You are in the new covenant by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus has fulfilled the promises made to Abraham. They are yes and amen in him. And then he closes with one final illustration about this newness. So children, Jesus is a doctor, a groom, a tailor with clothes. And now he talks about wine. You might have wine in your home. You might not have wine in your home. But Jesus talks about it here, doesn't he? He says, you don't take wine that's new and put it into an old wine skin. They would not have bottles, but goat skins that were tanned and the hair was cut and the skin was turned inside out. And that's where they would put it. If you put new wine in the old wine skin, what happens? It bursts. When we talk about this theologically, Jesus is saying, Moses is not your mediator. Christ is. So when the law comes and terrorizes you and frightens you and you think, I haven't done what God commands, you don't look to Moses. You don't look to yourself. You look to Christ. You find rest in him. The law doesn't condemn you anymore because you're in Jesus. You have the assurance of forgiveness, the grace and the love of God. You are called to believe on Christ and be saved. The righteousness God demands, he provides in his son. It's a time of joy time of feasting. Does that mean the law is done away with? No. The moral law reflects the character of God. Now that you're in Christ, the law is your delight, a guide in gratitude. I love your law, O oh God. We want to obey the law not to be saved, but because we've been saved. We want to have a life of thankfulness, joyful gratitude. The Pharisees don't know the freedom of the gospel. They don't know the good news. The Pharisees that we know, we pray, will know the good news, right? Those who are living outside of the covenant of God and without God, without hope in the world, we pray that by the grace of God they will come and profess faith in Jesus. If you don't know the love of Christ, if you think you're beyond the reach of that love, 
Look at what he says here. He came for sinners. If you're a believer today, be refreshed again in his love for you. An unspeakable love that goes above the highest peaks of Mount Everest and down below the deepest ocean and the depths of the earth and the water under the earth. There's no end to it. This is a time of spring, a time of new life. After all the months of winter, you're thinking, finally. The snow is mostly gone outside of Mount Eden Prairie in the Target parking lot. And it's still there. Spring means all that dead stuff from the fall is gone. Those leaves that hung on through the winter, see, even some of them, are pushed out. How? Through the buds of new life. The expulsive power of a new affection. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Jesus pushes out the dead, dislodges the empty religion of the Pharisees as he comes and fulfills the new covenant in his blood. As one man says, you have, by grace through faith, a new heart. You have God for your father, brothers and sisters. You have each other as the family of God. You have the spirit to help you in your weakness. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. You have access with boldness to the throne of grace. You will inherit the earth. Your hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. You will see God. Sin cannot condemn you. Satan cannot destroy you. Death has been defeated for you. Glory awaits for you as you are united to Jesus. Now that Christ has come, we rejoice in the Lord always. And we long for that marriage supper of the Lamb. When we will see him face to face in all his glory and beauty. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.